we made mention of it in our class for a little while, how intensely practical the scriptures are. And uh, we have enjoyed together seeing that truth, especially in the prophets. The, The prophets, it is so easy to read them and think that they are standing right here in 21st century America speaking to various peoples and cities about the morality and the problems that are going on. And that is certainly true for this section that we have just had read for us this morning in Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah has been preaching to the people. He has already begun this prophecy, very short so far of what we've seen, in describing to them the need for purification. He, he's calling upon the people how they need to get right with God and how weighty their sins are and how they've been rebellious against the Lord. And what you see in that first section there, verse 21 of Isaiah chapter 1, you'll notice this description of how this righteous nation, this nation that stood for the Lord, no longer does so. It is no longer faithful in Instead, it has lost its faithfulness and it is full of iniquities. The Lord is expecting righteousness, expecting holiness, but rather than finding that, he finds murderers, he finds injustice, he doesn't find what he is looking for out of the people. And so rather than receiving righteousness, he finds murder, he finds these these wrongs. And this, I think, is probably one of the more interesting observations that Isaiah makes. And it is an observation that we need to to truly grasp and proclaim to all the people today. And, And what you notice him observing is that their infidelity to God has caused treacherous activity toward other people. Because you've been unfaithful to God, look at what is happening You are full of injustice toward one another. You're full of murderers. You are not doing what is right. Notice verse 23. Your princes are rebels. They are friends of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe, runs after gifts. They don't bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Notice he puts his finger on the point that because you're not faithful to God, look at the degeneration that is going on among you. People now are more in it for themselves and they become selfish and live for their own desires and their own wants. The picture there is so powerful in verse 23 there in the middle. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. If it will make me money, then I will do it. If it will advance my career, if it is good for me, then I don't care what I have to do. I don't care what lines I have to cross. I don't care what laws I might have to violate whatever it is as long as it's good for me that's what I'm going to do and I want us to consider that this is atheism's enormous failure is that when you remove God there's no reason for ethics 
There's no reason for morality. There's no reason to do what is right. There is no reason to care about one another. When we reject God as a standard, there's nothing to stop us from doing whatever we want to do against another person. There's no reason not to harm your neighbor. There's no reason not to do wrong to them. There's no reason to not rip each other off. There's no reason not to kill one another. There's no reason not to steal from one another. There is no reason at all. And that's what Isaiah is identifying. Because of your infidelity to God, because of your lack of faithfulness to God, look at your society. Look at what's going on around you full of murderers, full of injustice, full of thieves, full of a bribe and receiving money and doing what you can for yourselves, full of selfishness. And Isaiah is pointing out a lesson that must be learned amongst our people today that if God is not the reason to constrain my actions, then what reason is there? There is none. There is no reason to constrain our actions. And we throw up our hands in the air and wonder, why are things going the way they are going? And Isaiah is pointing out that there is an explosion of ethical and immorality and all kinds of awfulness when God is removed. It's going to happen. And he sees it here in his nation and amongst his people. As neighbor rises their hand against neighbor and ethical and moral standards are destroyed, there is a total degeneration that begins to occur. And I think that's what's important to consider. And I'd like to take a stand for a minute as we observe our own society. You know, we, we, we get upset because we look at the world and go, well, you know, what's going on in our government? All the corruption and all the evil and all the selfishness and everybody's do, out for themselves and nobody's representing the people anymore. Or we look at the, the corporations. Man, look at what they're doing. They're swindling people left and right. And, and how can they not care about one another? But it's all about the bottom line. And they're already making 50 million, but I gotta make 51 million. How does the how do these things happen? Because governments and corporations and businesses are run by people. And people who do not put their faith in God have no reason to do what is moral or right or ethical. And that's why we deal with what we deal with. And that's why that will only continue and will only get worse the more we as a people turn our back on God. Because if God is not the standard, then there is no reason for anything that we do. And all that we do is become gods in our own eyes. And we do what is right in our own eyes. And we allow that to be the standard. And as Isaiah tells us here, that's a devastating standard. Look what has happened to the people. Verse 22, this nation, this holy nation that God had separated and set up and become his people. He describes them as silver. You were this precious jewel, this precious metal. You were something so valuable. Look what has happened to you. He says, you have become dross. The sin has tainted you completely. 
You are completely ruined by sin. Again, in verse 22, your best wine is mixed with water. No longer are you filled with purity and righteousness and holiness. You are mixed with sin such that you are so deluded that you're not even holy before the Lord anymore. We cannot lose sight that we as individuals must be faithful to God and we must call upon people to be faithful to God if we're going to see any kind of changes. And that's locally right here. And as we think broadly to our nation, it must change heart by heart. We will not be able to pass laws that change this. You must get people to love the Lord if things are ever going to change. And until that happens, until that standard is set up in the minds and the hearts and the lives of every single person, then we must not be surprised at the outcome. The outcome is what we read right here. There won't be righteousness, there won't be morality, there will not be godliness, there will be selfishness, and it will be every person for themselves, and no one will do anything for one another. And I want you to see what God says here in verse 24. God is angry about this. God does not look at activists and go, well, you know, that's the way people are, no big deal, you know, it's a shame that those things kind of happen. I want you to listen to the weight of what God says here in verse 24. Therefore the Lord declares, and notice the threefold calling of himself here. The Lord declares, the Lord of hosts. When you read Lord of hosts, that's the Lord of heaven's armies. It is not just like a, a kind of a simple phrase here. When you read Lord of hosts, it is always a military type picture. The Lord declares, the Lord of armies, the mighty one of Israel. Here is the Lord in all of his might. This isn't just, oh, well, God has something to say to you. No, in power and in weight, in military might, the Lord of armies, the mighty one of Israel. Here's what he declares. I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. God does not stand for this. And think about the weight of what who Isaiah is saying this to who are the enemies the enemies aren't the Gentiles the enemies are not the heathen nations out there who are doing all these bad things the enemies are the people of God they are the ones who have slipped They're the ones who are engaged in this. And God does not call these people his friends. He does not say that we are in a relationship. He does not speak of his love for them. He says, I will avenge my enemies. I am not going to stand for this. I cannot tolerate the people doing this. And you would suspect that verse 25 would then just begin this barrage of I am going to wipe everything out and just there is going to be annihilation and destruction because the Lord of armies, the mighty one of Israel, I will avenge myself and here it's going to come. And you just kind of expect this big bomb to come. But in surprise, look at verse 25. I will turn my hand against you and I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all of your alloy. 
And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. I expect the next line to be like we saw verses 9 and 10. And now I'm going to make you like Sodom and Gomorrah because you've been so wicked and God doesn't do that. Here's the mighty one of Israel and all of his strength and might and in his righteousness and justice to be able to turn against the people and say, I am done with you and it is total annihilation. Instead, he says, I'm going to clean you. And he describes it in a way that he says, I have the ability to cleanse like nobody else has to cleanse. He describes there in in verse 25, I can remove that alloy. I can remove the dross as with lye, he says. I have the cleaning agents. I can purify you. I can put you through the fire so that you can be made whole, that I can have the kind of people that I expect. And what you see Isaiah describing is something that is, I think, a fascinating thing. I almost decided to have a whole um, study on this, and I decided, no, I'll just kind of say it and leave it, and you can think about it. But it is interesting to consider how the discipline of the Lord is the means by which purification comes. And you see that throughout the pages of the scriptures. The discipline of the Lord is the means by which God brings about restoration and purification. Or to put it another way, it's the judgment of the Lord that always brings about salvation. God puts people through judgment because they are deserving of judgment, but there is always held out to them. There is salvation if you will turn. There is salvation if you will come back to me. If you will not engage in these things, I offer you a way out. There is purification. There is holiness. There is restoration. If you will be my people. If you'll no longer live like this. And that's where he goes now in these verses. Listen to the redemption that's being described. Listen to the hope that he now lays out for them as he calls for purity out of them. Verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. God now makes an offer He makes this beautiful offer to the people. I want to restore you. I want to cleanse you. You were like silver and you're completely ruined. You're full of dross now. But I have the cleaning agents and the heating abilities to be able to make you whole again. I can make you the silver again so that you are called the faithful city one more time. And you can be filled with righteousness one more time. Well, how is God going to do that? What is he going to do to accomplish this? How is he going to bring about this restoration? And I want you to observe in verse 27, the way that he does this is not by lowering his standards. God does not come along and say, well, because all of the world is full of sin and here are my people, Israel, and they aren't doing what they're supposed to do. And so here's what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to lower the bar. I know that I put this high bar before you and I expected you to live in holiness and righteousness and impurity, but nobody's able to do that. No one is righteous. No, not one. So I'll go ahead and lower the bar. That's not what he does. And I think that's really important to consider as Isaiah now projects and prophesies to what this future kingdom would be when the Messiah, Jesus Christ, comes. 
His answer is not, well, I'm going to change things, that my character is going to change, that I'm going to have different expectations. So often God is portrayed this way, and I hope that over the time that I've been here, I've eradicated that thinking from at least our minds. That God's character is not different in the Old Testament to the New Testament, and his expectations from the Old Testament to the New Testament did not change. He demands holiness. He did not get more laid back when you got to Jesus. Now he goes, well, now it's all okay. You know, back there he's that angry, wrathful, vengeful God. But then you turn the page and now he's the God of love and the God of kindness. And he's all right with our sin and it's okay now. You have to be kidding me. That is not at all the teaching. In fact, the New Testament teaches quite the reverse. That if we see the wrath of God against sin like we do in the Old Testament, how much worse when it happens against His Son, Hebrews chapter 12. How much worse. It is far worse. And we do this against Jesus who's died on the cross, who's made the sacrifice for sins, and then we turn and sin against him. The answer that God gives is not a lowering of the standards. He does not say, well, now I don't need a people of holiness and righteousness. You see it there in verse 27. Zion is going to be redeemed by justice. They're going to turn to me by righteousness. He's calling on the people for repentance. Turn back to to God. Respond to me with sorrowful, penitent heart. Come back to the Lord. Here's the picture. Everybody is full of sin. Everybody is weighted down. Filthy, stained hands of sin. That's what Isaiah 1 has been all about. Describing the sinfulness of all the people. And... We've seen in verse 24, God is going to get relief from his enemies. Judgment must happen against sin. But salvation will come through judgment. And so he makes the offer here in verse 27. There is redemption if you'll come to me. This doesn't have to be the final straw. This doesn't have to be the end of the story. Yes, we are full of sins. Yes, God is going to avenge himself. Yes, God must do something about this. He cannot just simply overlook sin. But here's the offer of salvation. If you will return to me, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to pay a price to buy you back. I love the word redeem. We see it in the scriptures a lot. This picture of redemption, redeem, ransoming, that God is going to make a payment to be able to to bring his people back into relationship with him. And that's what you see verse 27 describing here. There's an opportunity that's going to come. Redemption is going to be made by God. There's going to be a chance for his people to be his one more time. He's going to make the offer to clean the people. But verse 28, the rebels and the sinners, they will be broken together Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. This is not a, everybody's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. One day God's going to take care of all this. He's going to send a Savior. He's going to redeem it. Everybody's going to be fine. No, no. Verse 27, those who come to me are going to find salvation. But those who continue to rebel, those who continue to forsake the Lord, the judgment remains. This standing before God 
of being guilty of our sins, we will not be cleansed without a redemption, without returning to him to find that redemption. And I want you to consider that it was statements like these that the prophets made that was really the hope for the people all throughout the history of the scriptures. This was the grand hope that everybody looked forward to. We stand out here at 2012 and we know everything about Jesus and so this doesn't sound like a real big deal. But I want you to feel the anticipation, the hope and the expectation that people were looking for to be able to have a day when they could have their sins removed to be restored back to God. To belong to this redemption that God was going to take place in his purchasing. Think about how the Gospel of Luke begins. Here is Zechariah as he learns about John the baptizer who will be the forerunner to the coming of the Savior. It would be in his generation that the Savior was going to come to be able to accomplish this buying back and removal of sins. That he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up the horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. There was this huge anticipation of there would be a day where we could be saved, we could be redeemed, we could be cleansed. And here is Zechariah going, that day has come, and praise the Lord that that opportunity has now come. Listen to how Luke ends. There's two fellows walking down a road, having a conversation about this Jesus who had been crucified. And they are having a discussion and saying, we had hoped that he was the one to do what? Redeem Israel. Looking for who is going to redeem, who is going to get this dross off of us, who is going to purify us so that we can be in relationship with him again. What is going to happen? Who is going to be the one to accomplish this so that we can be saved from our sins? I want you to listen to how the Apostle Peter then penned it as he described it now for the Christians. 1 Peter 1 verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. For just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Just first notice here now as obedient children, here's the call to the people. Don't do what you did before. Don't live in the ignorance that you lived in before, doing what you wanted to do, living how you wanted to live, setting ourselves up as our own gods and what pleases us, that will be what is good. He says, don't live like that. He called you to be holy. Well, this is the call that Isaiah is making. It is a call of repentance, a call of righteousness and justice. If you will come back to the Lord, here's the call of holiness. Verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that you that for you know that it was not with perishable things 
such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. It says, you have been purchased. You were bought by God. But you weren't bought with silver and gold. In fact, Isaiah will prophesy that later, far later in this book. You're not going to be redeemed by money, gold, silver, tangible things like that. That's not how you were purchased. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And what that redemption means, as Peter says it there, it is to redeem us from that empty way of life. This life that we're reading about here of people who are in it for themselves, living how they want to live, whatever is good for me, however I can take advantage of one another, of someone else, how I can have more money, more wealth, whatever promotes me. You were redeemed from that, he says. You were bought by the blood of Christ so that you would not live that way anymore. A lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. This is the call of restoration that is being made. And that's why the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Isaiah is standing back here to a nation full of wickedness, full of faithlessness to God and immorality toward one another. And he says, there's going to be a day, there's going to be a time. God is going to redeem his people. He is going to take what you have ruined, the stains of sin that are just afflicting you and ruining you so that you're no longer a precious jewel or metal before him. And he's going to cleanse you. But those who forsake the Lord, that cleansing doesn't come. Verse 28 of Isaiah chapter 1, The Lord will consume those who continue to forsake, but God is holding out an offer of salvation through judgment. You were redeemed from that empty way. Why would we go back to that kind of lifestyle? Why would we return to those ways? That's what got us in trouble in the first place. That's what separated us from God. Christ comes, redeems us, and Peter says, you are redeemed with the most expensive thing that creation has ever seen. And we just remembered it just a few minutes ago. You were bought with the most expensive thing that could have possibly been set as a price for sin. There is not a greater expense that God could have set. Not a higher price that God could have declared to be able to deal with our sins. And I believe the intention of that is to show the weightiness of our sins, the gravity of our sins. It's why the blood of bulls and goats doesn't work. It's not enough. It took an expensive price to redeem. And here he's picturing, I'm going to have people who are going to be redeemed. I could have utterly annihilated everyone, 
The Lord, the Lord of armies, the mighty one of Israel declares, I'm going to cleanse my people. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to give them the chance to come back to me. But I'm calling for them for a massive life change. And that's what, if you notice the verse before, right before he says, you're not your own, you were bought with a price. Look at what he says right in front of that. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin is a, a, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. He links the two together. You were bought with a price. And then he puts his finger on sexual morality. You don't have that choice. You can't live how you want to live. And we are certainly in a world like that right now. Here we live in this time of whatever feels good. And so we have sexual relations before marriage, outside of marriage. We have it with adultery, fornication. It's running rampant in our society today. And here's the point he makes. Not my people. Not if you want to be cleansed. Not if you want to find redemption. You will not find it in those kinds of activities. God does not accept that. You were redeemed from that empty way of life. The precious blood of Christ was paid. How dare we go back into that emptiness that severs that relationship again. And that's what he points out in verses 29 through 31. His people, the redeemed people, they will understand this. Verse 29, they, they shall be ashamed of the yokes that you desire. They shall blush for the guards they have cho- you have chosen. For you will be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. Now, I definitely understand the garden without water imagery. When we first built our house, we had to go on vacation before we got the sprinkler system in. It's Florida. It rains every day in the summer, right? Not that year. <laughs> dead, dead grass. And the weeds came in and overtook it, ran wild, and we never could get that thing back. What a picture that's being described here. Do you understand that there is no life in these empty things? There is nothing there. It's dead. It is just utter deadness. This life without God, this empty way of life that we pursue, that we think we are being so smart by excluding God. Oh, we don't need God. We're educated. We have science. We're smart. We got it all figured out. We know everything there is to know. We've got every philosophy all worked out. I've got Dr. Phil at three o'clock. I've got it all worked out. How could I not need anything else in this world because I'm so smart? He says, when you listen to your own heart and you go your own way, what happens to society is what Isaiah described in verses 21 to, to 23. We are tearing each other apart. And then he comes to the end and says, and there's no strength and there's no life in that way of living. You're not finding the joy that you think you're finding. You go engage in that sexual immorality. You're not finding the satisfaction you think you're finding. You're finding guilt. You're not finding happiness. You're finding emptiness. And you're led to believe that the more sin you commit, now that'll bring you the joy you're looking for. And he says, you're like a tree that leaves wither. 
you have no strength, you have no life, you have no vitality because you've given yourself to the ways of this wicked world and you don't even understand how it's destroying you. In fact, verse 31, the strong become tender. We, we think we're so strong without God. So smart, so strong, so figured out. We don't need anybody else. We don't need God telling us what to do. And I love how Isaiah has just simply presented this and says, none of these things are saving you. They're not redeeming you. In fact, the reason your life as an individual and the reason why the life of the nation is devastated and ruined like it is, is because you've left God out of the equation. It's not saving you. It's not redeeming you. It's not bringing you the hope that you thought it would bring. And it's not bringing you the life that you presumed. And what Isaiah is proclaiming, though it may not feel that way, because it is very sharp words, but he's proclaiming a message of grace. You're a mess. Your nation's a mess. The people are a mess. These are supposed to be the holy people of God. And God in his great might and power could rise up and put an end to the game. And instead he uses every bit of his power and might to cleanse. To send his son to die. So that we can be redeemed from such a foolish way of life. And Isaiah says, oh, look forward to that day. And the Apostle Peter says, that day is already here. The day has come. The day that the prophets were hoping for. The day that Zechariah was proclaiming as his son was born. The day that those two men on the road to Emmaus were discussing to one another. We thought he was the one to redeem Israel. He was. And he did. And we can be redeemed. We can be bought. We can be made whole. We can be cleansed. If, as verse 27 says, if we will turn back to God. Don't don't give up on such a precious opportunity to come back to God. In His strength, He will cleanse you He will take away those sins and you will be that silver that he created you to be once more. He will make you what you ought to be. He will heal you, cleanse you, and he'll put you in a relationship with him so that he will be your father and you can be a child of God, a recipient of all the privileges of what it means to be in God's glorious and gracious kingdom. And so we're pulling our songbooks out now and the song we're singing is the words we're saying is an invitation to you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. To repent of sins. What that means is to turn away from this emptiness. To recognize that the life that you've been living is leading to more and more sin leading to more and more dissatisfaction rather than finding the one who has come to save. Recognize that this world does not offer what it proclaims. It does not give what it promises. 
Only God can give that to you. And God has come through Jesus Christ and dying on the cross to be able to take away your sins. Confess Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins and be immersed in water to have your sins washed away. In that, the transaction is made. He's already paid the price, but will you receive the blood and come to Him? Won't you come while we stand and while we stand?